you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now, in fact, on Fast Money, from housing boom to housing bummer, a nightmare scenario for the sector. But is it just what the Fed wanted when they started to raise rates aggressively? We're going to talk about that. Plus, Nordstrom falling off the rack after hours. The upscale retailer cutting their full-year sales forecast, facing a, a, an inventory glut. We're going to go inside those numbers. And then later, a whistleblower at Twitter, a former employee, alleging that execs misled the board and the public about spam bots, security, and more. Twitter firing back. Could this help Elon Musk ditch his bad bird deal? I'm Joe Kernan. In fact, as you know, in from Melissa Lee, getting used to this, uh, but not too much. This is Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site. On the desk tonight, Steve Grasso, Guy Adami, Karen Feinerman, and... Uh, I didn't see you yesterday, Brian. You came in. The crypto is a little better today, so you're in a good mood. Brian Kelly. Yeah, but yeah, a little better. <laughs> what about the merge? You got to explain the merge to me. Can you do? I know what the purge was. Bad movies. I know what the surge yeah. was. But you got to help me with the merge. As we start with the, the Fed's big conundrum. You got though. 90 minutes? Let's go. <laughs> in the morning, I do. I got 180. Uh, let's start with the big conundrum with just over a day left before central bankers convene uh, in Jackson Hole. Jerome Powell is facing um, opposing forces on inflation. What's going up? Prices on essentials like energy and food and things like natural gas, although today was a little better. What's uh, going down? Housing, stocks, and Bitcoin. Guy, you called this the nightmare before Jackson Hole. You like that, Joe? I mean, I, like I know that. you get into those producer type of things. So, and by the way, I just wanted to mention, it's not that I don't like sitting next to you, but there's only, you know, it's like Icarus got too close to the sun. You saw what happened to him. I just don't want to be Icarus, so I stay away from your sun. I, can under, your I, beam. I, I get that. I get that. Your excuse. Appreciate that. Fed is an excuse, though, and BK has talked about this at length, and I'll talk about it now. I mean, the things that are going down are things, to BK's point, that we want. The things that are going higher are things that, unfortunately, we need. So they continue to have inflation in all the wrong places, and they can talk it down all they want. The reality is, if they even consider pausing or pivoting or whatever they do, the commodity market's going to get away from them, leading to further inflation. Meanwhile, the data suggests that things are softening, which is also what they want. Problem is, both are happening at the same time at, at pretty significant speeds, and they can't control either right now. What do you think uh, the prospects are for people uh, listening to, to what happens in Jackson Hole and saying, yeah, I, I like that. Uh, Kramer this morning was saying it, it, there's just probably no way, um, or actually I think Rick Santelli made that point as well, no way we're going to be happy no matter what they say. It, it, you can't, they, they have to really navigate this properly, but we, I, I think we're all probably in agreement that there's absolutely zero chance that they are dovish in Jackson Hole. The, you cannot be dovish at this point. But let's look at what has happened. Wheat down 25%, crude down 30%, lumber down 65%. So things are coming down. They have come to housing coming down. 
But they do have to navigate, and this goes to Guy's point about the dollar. They have to be strong. They have to be hawkish because if they back off a little bit, then all of these commodities run back up because they have an inverse correlation to the dollar. So I think we're going to be surprised to the downside CPI in September. That could give them a little bit of a margin uh, you know, of error. But they have to walk that game. They have to talk the talk. They have to be hawkish. And then maybe back off the hawkish a- actions. Well, that's, Karen, do you, do you think they have the ability to follow through on the medicine that we really need? And, and the reason I was talking about it earlier today, that we saw through the financial crisis how, how easy, it wasn't Jay Powell, but we saw how easy the Fed was. We know how easy the Fed was all through the pandemic. Maybe that was warranted, but they've never had to, to, to be mean. They've never had to take the punch bowl away. Do, they, do you think they have the ability to do that when, when the going gets tough, Karen? I do. I actually do. I think that if they look back at 2018 that that was a mistake, that they didn't have the fortitude to keep going. Um, And so I think things are very different now. Obviously, we've had the pandemic. We've had balance sheets just ballooning, government balance sheets ballooning. And so, you know, we have to get a handle on inflation. I do think that, you know, Guy points out the things that are going up, but we also know, as he also pointed out, the things that are going down. I think, though, they are nowhere near in the zone where they can say, all right, we're pivoting. Even if we interpret it as such, I don't think that's happening. I agree with Steve completely. No pivot. No dovish. Well, Brian, that unfortunately, the market and the the uh, the economy and the the employment rate would probably like a pivot. We don't want to have a horrible slowdown. We don't really want a, a full fledged recession, do we? So, I, I almost wish there could be an early pivot, just because I think near term that's what the markets and and it'd be easier. Would that long term be a bad thing, Brian? Do we want more pain and and do we really want them to follow through on, (laughs) I don't know, to to get up to where they're actually making a difference on? Brian, what what do you say the inflation rate is? What do you use? PCE, CPI, PPI, which which measure do you use and what is it? Is it 8 percent, 7 percent, 4 percent, 5 percent? What is it? Heineken for him. It's Heineken, right? (laughs) That's the inflation rate for you. Exactly. Yeah, what's, what's the price of barley? That's what I look for. Uh, well, I would just say, listen, nobody wants the party to end at 1 o'clock in the morning when they turn the lights on, right? Nobody wants that. Um, and that's what's happened here. And the Fed has told you since November, hey, we're going to be turning the lights on its last call. Now the question is, you know, when do they pivot and have they over-tightened? We're seeing the economy really take a nosedive here. I think they probably end up over-tightening because they don't, they want to fight inflation. I don't know what the inflation rate is, but I do know it's probably not 3% where the two-year yield is. And they've told you repeatedly that they want the two-year yield to be above the rate of inflation. So therefore, I would think two-year needs to be maybe 5% or so before this is over, which then means to me, we've probably got lower asset prices. Now we're seeing oil go up. Not only do we have a supply problem, but now in Europe, with the equivalent of gas and oil, we've got governments with subsidies. So you're not going to have the demand destruction that everybody wants. So now I've got higher energy prices, which are going to keep my CPI, inflation, whatever right. number you want, sticky. Uh, and that's a problem. And if it's Nord Stream 1 in Germany and Vladimir Putin and uh, OPEC, which we're going to talk about, none of those things are within the Fed's control to, by, by raising, I guess, maybe a little bit in terms of, of demand, 
But how do they tackle something that's, you know, thousands of miles away, Guy, and it's a global market, and so they're, this, you know, this tool that they have is such a blunt instrument, we got to kill our economy because of, of Vladimir Putin? I know you're an educated man. Uh, I'll give you a little Shakespeare. Uneasy is the head that wears the crown. So, yeah, it's really tough. You know what? I'm not the Fed chair. I'm, I'm not a Fed governor. I mean, they chose to do that, and there's a lot of responsibility associated with it. So, yeah, those things were unforeseen without question. But remember, Joe, and I know you know this, these were the same people for years that were begging for inflation because they thought somehow if they got it, they'd be able to control it. And the hubris surrounding that is, in a word, infuriating. So, yeah, I mean, you know what? Unforeseen circumstances, too bad, figure it out. So, you know, BK brought up a good point that the Fed usually oversteps. So we all expect the Fed to overstep and be a little more hawkish than they need to be. But having said that, you brought up a great point. A third of it Wait, is demand. You, I did? You did. You didn't even know. That's how, that's how smart you are. Wow. A third of the inflation is demand. Right. Two-thirds is everything else that they have zero control over. So what's the, what's the, the, the point that you pose to Guy? I, what happens if they're wrong? What happens if this clears up? Maybe it's not transitory, but maybe it's not as long in the tooth as they think it's going to be. And then what does that result in? Could you imagine if, if the two years, as BK said, 5%? Right. What do you think the market's doing at 5% two-year? Where, where are we? Forget about testing the lows. Right. We're at new lows, and, and you really have to look at I charts want. going way back to see where we're going to be. I think we need to... Reset that two percent. That's I mean, we can't get to two percent. What, what philosopher did you mention yesterday, Adami? I can't remember. You you were De, Rene Rene Descartes, I believe. But I'll you throw went, philosophers at you all day long. I mean, if no, you, you want. No, you did, and you just did. I think Spider Man's uncle, didn't you? What'd you say? With great responsibility, come with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. You you you're so I, fast. Uneasy, between. uneasy is the head that wears the crown. I mean, I'll oh, go okay. all day. I mean, we could do an entire show with just. All right, you let's know, not. We could, but let's not. One classes. Diana's <laughs> waiting. An earnings alert now on Toll Brothers. Thank you, everyone. We're going to talk more. An earnings alert now. On Toll Brothers shares of the company lower uh, after a mixed uh, earnings report from its fiscal uh, third quarter. Diana Olick is here with the details. This the toll shouldn't be as affected by higher rates, right? Because everybody's got so much money that buys a toll house. Well, it shouldn't be, and it wasn't, but now apparently it is, because we saw a miss on revenue due to softer demand. And that's not surprising, given that the high end of the market, which is, of course, where Toll Brothers lives, has finally started to crack. Toll reported signed contracts down 44% year over year by value, down 60% by home count. Cancellations spiked from 3% a year ago to 13% in this Q3. CEO Doug Yearly said demand dropped due to sharply rising mortgage rates, higher home prices, stock market volatility, and macroeconomic uncertainty. But he added, in more recent weeks, we have seen signs of increased demand as sentiment is improving and buyers are returning to the market. He noted weekly deposits in the first three weeks of August were up 25% compared with July. Toll, however, did lower its guidance on home deliveries. The average price of a toll home in backlog was still up 18% from a year ago. No commentary in this report on any prices coming down, Joe. So what do you give it? Diana, it's happening, isn't it? The thing you've been on so many times talking about whether we're going to see this. So we're in, we're in an early inning, aren't we, for, for the, the slowdown? 
Well, I think we're in an early inning for the slowdown overall, but then you see a remark like this about suddenly seeing demand coming back a little bit in the last three weeks. Now, in the last three weeks, we did see mortgage rates come down. They, of course, spiked back up last Friday and are back up closer to 6% this week. But maybe buyers step back, maybe they step back in again. I think it all has to do with home prices, and I do think you're going to start to see some softening in prices going forward, which could, of course, in turn bring more people back to the market because, as we've always said, it was overpriced, it was overheated, but there is still huge demand and low supply in this market. All right, we're going to trade it. I want to know what you're going to do with this, Diana. Should we buy it? No, no I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, let's, 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 let's go with the Ew. people who do. <laughs> so if I, if I look at the home builders, go back on a chart and look at February 2020 levels and all the home builders. KBH is the only home builder that is below that level or uh, substantially below that level. If you go back to Feb 2020, Interest rates were a lot lower. Should these should these stocks be higher or lower than they were Feb 2020? I say lower. So I would stay away from the home builders. Still give them a little room to breathe and see how they react in a rate environment where we are trying to crush demand. Anyone else feel strongly about this guy or, or BK, Karen? Well, real quick, well, I, I mean, can, anytime can I the Toll Brothers was all, I mess that up. See, go and ahead, the guy's go got a little delay. Um, I'm Karen. Okay, I'm going to try and do this. Karen, you first, and then I'm going to go to Guy. So I have a question for Steve. I hear you about the chart, but they have made a bunch of money in the few years since then, right? So it actually, the stock is the same price, but the value of the company is not the same price. Uh, Yes, and I'm I'm a big fan of forward-looking versus rear view, and the stock market is always a discounter of that. So I, I hear exactly what you're saying. But how many people bought second homes during the pandemic that are not going to be buying any more second or third homes uh, after the pandemic? How many people are going to hit the market? And the price of housing is still way too high. Guy, do you want to finish up? Yeah, real quick. I mean, look at the average delivery price. That's what they call it. $937,000, significantly higher than the street was looking for. I mean, to Diana's point, it's a supply-demand thing. In terms of the stock quickly... I mean, $44, you go back five years and the stock was $44. So the way to trade this has been, if you go back and look, you know, 10% below, you buy it, 10% above, you sell it, and you continue to do that in a name like Toll Brothers. All right, thanks, Guy. Let's, uh, let's turn back uh, to oil. Our next guest warns there's a shocking problem in supply right now. Oil analyst Paul Sankey runs Sankey uh, Research. Your firm? That's me. Yeah, see how I did that? Uh, <laughs> no flies on me. Um, we had Halim on. In fact, we had her on a lot yesterday, talking about the surprise notion that there could be an OPEC a production cut after right. they barely, you know, gave the president anything with 100,000 uh, a day. Is, is, is what you're saying based on that at all, Paul, or, or other things? Well, I mean, in that statement, they did say that we're out of spare capacity, that we've got a, we've got a supply problem. So I think what there was there was frustration from the Saudis that the oil prices come back as much as you guys have mentioned. Yet, they still see strong demand. They still see a problem with supply. Uh, and they actually also, for you guys, trading guys, uh, saw a major problem between physical and paper markets. So they feel that so much liquidity is out of the paper market that the price is not really, that you see on your screens, is not really reflective of the physical market behind. We had a long discussion this morning on that, that 
that OPEC uh, or the Saudis were complaining about price manipulation. Isn't it a cartel? <laughs> Isn't that what, it, 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 they, that's what they do for a living, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> yeah, sure, <laughs> basically. I mean, yeah, they're trying to organize the price, but I think what they're really saying is there's a disconnect between the price you're seeing on your screen and you know, what's out there in terms of physical uh, reality, in terms of what they're seeing. We don't need, uh, given that we've seen some progress, I think the markets rallied, the equity markets rallied from, from June 16th on because we thought inflation was at least moderating. If something really hits the fan in Germany and, and if Putin decides, I don't know, what, you look at what's happening now, he's saying, you know, Ukraine assassinated his, his friend's daughter. Yeah. I mean, if things blow up in terms of what they do with, uh, with the spigot yeah. to Europe, that's totally out of the Fed's control and our control if, if energy prices spike. Yeah, I mean, I was obviously listening to the show, and the one thing I would say that the government here can do yeah. is the SPR, right? So they're pounding the oil market right now with, you know, as much as a million barrels a day of incremental oil supply coming straight out of our emergency storage. We're at 100 today. You know, it's not working too well. So, yeah, it's very concerning. The next toss-up is hurricane season. Who knows? We haven't had anything yet. Iran, uh, a wild card? Well, I think they're going to try and bring them back in, yeah, but it could take several months. The good news with Iran is you get, uh, the government again is keen probably to get that all back on the market. There's about 60 to 70 million barrels of floating storage there that can come into the market. And that's the other side of what we've seen this week. People saying Saudi very bullish, saying that basically we want $100 oil. People bearish saying Iran's going to come back in. Beyond that, what you're saying about Europe is going to be about winter. You know, that's terrifying. That's literally terrifying. It's terrifying for, on a you know, human condition level, if not, on get a a, not on a commodity uh, price level. Well, I mean, I think the point is that we could get inflation coming back in, right. further to what you were saying. Okay, so we, we talk about new lows in the stock market. What about new highs in oil? No one thinks that that's going to happen, do you? Uh, yeah, no, I think that we're all kind of bullish into 2023. You know, to where? Issue. Uh, I don't think we'll do much above 150 on a sustained basis. But we'll basis. see 150 again. I could see 150 as being, you know, I mean, the, the problem that we've got here is... It's well, a long way from 90, Paul. Sure it, it is. No, yeah, absolutely. But look at the global supply picture. The global supply picture is a mess. I mean, you're, the Saudis themselves are telling you there's nothing left. Look in the Permian. The, this, this week, the rig count was down. We're at 100 bucks a barrel, and the rig count's gone down. There's, no, there's not a huge amount of uh, growth coming from, from the U.S. at all, and we're the last grower. So, and if you look around the world, there's only like 10 countries in the world that can add more than like 100,000 barrels a day of incremental supply. Global demand right now is over 100 million barrels a day. That's 1,200 barrels a second. So, you know, when we look at the supply side, we're like, yeah, you're going to 100. So, so but what's the, what's the, what was the pushback then when oil was at 129 and it cratered to 85? The, I, I think you would agree that it was probably the same setup, bullish scenario. So was it the dollar? What, no, we what just was wait one the... I wouldn't, because in March, when I said we'd do 110 to 150 this summer, you thought you would lose 2 million barrels a day of Russia, and you thought you would gain 2 million barrels a day of China, demand side. So where we're at today is 4 million bearish to the negative side, and we're still at 100. So actually, the summer passed very bearishly compared to where we thought we were in March. Sorry, but go on. No, 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 we, we, we got to go now. Yeah. They, uh, they tell me things, that, and they, they seem really serious when they tell me. The, uh, uh, final word, though, goes to you, BK. Oh, well, listen, I'm, I'm with Paul on this one. I think you got to buy oil. The, the biggest supplier in the world said, you know what? We don't want the price to go any lower. We're going to cut supply. That's all you need to know. It's amazing. Paul, thanks. Pleasure. Uh, great to have you in. Uh, especially on the set uh, with us. Coming up, uh, a little birdie at Twitter. 
whistleblowing and uh, throwing another wrench in the Elon Musk legal battle. Uh, what's next uh, for the social media stocks? Let's stick around to find out. First, though, as we, we do have some after-hours action for you. Nordstrom on the move uh, after reporting earnings. We're going to bring you that trade next down almost 14 percent. It's pretty ugly. Coming back. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got uh, an earnings alert on Nordstrom. The shares dropping after the department store uh, slashed its revenue outlook uh, for the year. Uh, the company did beat estimates on the top and bottom lines, though, but it's all about what, Courtney, I think they went, uh, what, five to seven? They had been at six to eight for, for revenue growth. Yeah, what, was it, that for the year? Yeah, exactly, for the year. So the revenue cut wasn't that drastic, Joe. The earnings cut was actually much more drastic. And like the other retailers today, you mentioned Nordstrom did put up a slight beat on the top and the bottom line. It's that full-year profit forecast, though. That's what's really hammering the shares right now, down about 14%. So Nordstrom is, says that basically what they have to do is invest in its supply chain, discount the remainder of the year, the inventory that wasn't selling. It hopes then that sets it up for the longer term. They're also adjusting for some of the softening trends that they've seen in the lower income shoppers, primarily at that Nordstrom rack division. So total inventory was up just 10%. That's actually pretty low compared to the other retailers this quarter. And it was on revenue growth of 12%. Like other retailers have seen Nordstrom's lower income consumer, their spending is more strained than that higher income group. And they're actually saying on the call that the highest of high prices are the ones, those products they're selling the best. In the quarter, the rack division, the off-price division, that was the weakest. It decelerated during the quarter. Revenue ended up 6.3%, but the department store sales grew nearly 15% for the quarter. By category, men's was the strongest at its department stores, followed by shoes, women's apparel, and beauty. Joe? That's weird. There's some, some things that we haven't seen yeah. with, with some of the other reports. So nobody's trading down in the... In the 
figures. The, the, once again, it's a bifurcated economy. Totally. People that, that aren't affected by inflation and, and, and the slowdown, they seem to be doing okay. So it's at the low end. Huh? Yeah, it's interesting because they're, they're talking about even within that luxury category. And if you look at the luxury category, it's the highest part that's selling the best, not the lowest prices there. But then in the Nordstrom Rack division, those sales started weakening throughout the quarter. So it's not even that that customer was trading down. Maybe they just stopped coming in or stopped buying as much. But that high income is just going higher with their okay. purchasing. Courtney, thanks. Uh, Karen, what do you make uh, of that? We saw Macy's uh, earlier. Is it, it seems like they, there's a little nuance here. It's not, it's not the same, is it? Yeah. And it's a little confusing because Macy's cited Bloomingdale's strength. So you'd think that the Bloomingdale's customer would be more similar to a Nordstrom customer. The magnitude of the cut on their second half, so taking this giant hit, for you know the next two quarters, it's sort of surprising given that their inventory, as Courtney said, is really not so far out of line. And so I, you know, they did cite private label. They're going to be really aggressive on price, which is bad for all the other retailers. So I, I'm surprised at how badly they missed here. I, I'm not quite sure what exactly happened because I would have thought from from Macy's report that Nordstrom would have had a pretty decent quarter. Right. I mean, if they this, did or this quarter, but the guidance was weak. The sales guidance wasn't that bad. And if they don't have that much inventory to discount, then why, are, why is the bottom line number so bad? They're not, they're not writing off like Target and Walmart had, had to write off some, to, so, or, or discount so much inventory. So I, I don't know. Are they telling us everything? They would, they'd tell us everything, wouldn't they, Karen? I mean, they wouldn't. <laughs> I think, well, I always like to hear the call. I like to hear, you know, how do they sound? What's the body language? Yeah, they're not, something's a, something is a bit off here. They're just going to be super aggressive. And there's a possibility that maybe they just want to set the bar very low for themselves and they think they can do better than what they're guiding the street. Do we all agree that retail CEOs have the hardest job and that they probably maybe earn their money more than, I don't know, I, that's always hard, but I, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin as, as far as uh, what to buy each season and then discounting. That's obvious by what you're wearing, Yeah, Joe. yeah, yeah. No, you know what I mean. Could you? <laughs> Um, could you do a, like a I hot? Think, I could think, you do a hot topic? You have red pants on. You I do. might be able to do. I do. I might be able to do. Red it. pants. I on. might. I might. Go, I might be the guy for. They're this. actually pink. He said they used to be red. And I go red. I'm or not pink. so great at washing them with uh, with with cold water. Yeah, but, but telling me they used to be red doesn't mean it explains why you're wearing pink. Why were you wearing red? <laughs> anyway, never. We got to go. There's a lot more. Uh, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what uh, is coming up next. More earnings on deck. Options traders gearing up for NVIDIA results tomorrow. Is the semi-slump over or still sliding? That trade ahead. Plus, bad news for the bird. Twitter's former head of security blowing the whistle, alleging big problems with spam bots and privacy. What does this mean for Elon Musk's legal battle with the social media company? We'll dig into those details next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM. 
a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Twitter tanking today after accusations of, quote, extreme egregious deficiencies in security protocols. And that was from its former head of security. And it was made public. And our Eamon Javers joins us now uh, with the details. And this I just thought it was about bots and things. But there was a lot uh, that, that slowly surfaced, I think, Eamon. Tell us about it. Yeah, Joe, that's right. National security in there, foreign spies in there. The whistleblower here is Twitter's former head of security, Peter Zatko. He's a hacker who's known by the name, uh, the nickname Mudge. Zatko says Twitter misled the government about security and spam, violated an FTC settlement, is running out of out of date software and withheld key facts about the number of data breaches at the company. The complaint also says the company prioritized user growth over reducing spam and executives stood to make bonuses for themselves of as much as $10 million tied to increases in daily users, but not to eliminating spam. Mudge was hired at Twitter by Jack Dorsey in late 2020, but he was fired by the company in January of this year. In a statement to CNBC this morning, a Twitter spokesperson said this. Mr. Zatko was fired from his senior executive role at Twitter in January of 2022 for ineffective leadership and poor performance. What we've seen so far is a false narrative about Twitter and our privacy and data security practices that is riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies and lacks important context. Mr. Zatko's allegations and opportunistic timing appear designed to capture attention and inflict harm on Twitter, its customers and its shareholders. And Joe, in a separate interview that was aired on CNN today, Zacco's legal team said he didn't have any contact with Elon Musk, who, of course, is in that heated battle over getting out of his acquisition of Twitter. So that raises an interesting question of how closely Musk uh, will dovetail his efforts here with Zacco going forward. Musk's team says they've submitted a subpoena to Zacco for any information he might have that could be helpful to Elon. Number one, I don't like they're on CNN and not on us, uh, Eamon. But uh, no, 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 never, never mind. Uh, thank yeah, you. Objection I noted. Uh, I don't understand that. Uh, thanks, Eamon. Why? Why? Um, right. Uh, the allegations from the Twitter whistleblower could ultimately help uh, Elon Musk. That's according to Axios business editor Dan Premack, who is here on CNBC, uh, at least. Hey, Dan. Um, yeah, I, I immediately thought it has to be good probably for Elon, but... The discussion we had this morning was there's this notion that, that Elon said, I'm buying it the way it is. And it'd have to be pretty uh, unbelievably different than what he was aware of at the time. Is it rise to that level yet, do you think? On the bot issue, no. And that's what's most interesting about this whistleblower complaint, to me at least, vis-a-vis -vis Elon, is that when it comes to the bot issue, which is what Elon's been arguing for the last several months, I don't think this particularly helps him. And in fact, there's even a line apparently in there uh, which suggests that Twitter is disincentivized to lie about the MDAUs uh, because it doesn't help them from a revenue standpoint, or at least to lie to advertisers about it. The different thing, though, is that there's an argument in here that Twitter has violated the consent decree with the DOJ and the FTC from 2011. If that were true, in theory, again, it would have to be verified and then something would have to happen. There could be a huge fine coming to Twitter here from the government that could be material. In other words, Elon might have a new front in his argument based on this whistleblower complaint that has nothing to do with bonds. Man. So he's just got a horseshoe up his uh, um, nose. Or, or, <laughs> and so that could work for him. You say he's a terrible M&A guy, great te technology guy. Yeah. But, I mean, is he really going to, that could happen? I mean, that would be amazing, well, I mean, wouldn't it? 
it, it could happen as a, as a colleague of mine said something along the lines of today, you know, if you gamble enough, sometimes you just get really, really lucky. That might be where he's at. I mean, that would be. Uh, that Dan, would be I know you- Go ahead, guy. No, I'm sorry, Joe. I apologize. I was going to say, Dan, I know you follow this extraordinarily closely. There, obviously, Tesla's up today. I mean, how bullish on the margins is all this news for Tesla, in your opinion? I'm not asking you to play stock market, but that's clearly what's going on. I mean, it's very much on the margins, right? The reason it matters for Tesla is, is Elon wouldn't necessarily have to sell even more stock. I will say there was another development today that has nothing to do with the whistleblower, is that Twitter's been asking for information on Elon's equity backers, that, that group of firms and individuals that are contributing, in theory, to his Twitter deal, because all Twitter and any of us have seen so far is name, amount. We don't know how solid those commitments are. So in other words, were Musk forced to do this deal, could Larry Ellison, Andreessen Horowitz, et cetera, do they have to participate at that point or could they bail? And, and that information, hopefully from Tesla's shareholder point of view, would come out because they don't really know how much Elon would personally be on the hook for this deal, possibly were he forced to do it. So the prospect for an on-time trial and, and everything else, is that different now? I, I, how long, I, I how would long think will- it could be. I would think it could be. Remember, Elon's team originally wanted this in February. Twitter wanted it in September. The judge in Delaware gave them October. It's possible this whistleblower complaint could push things back, although, again, there hasn't, to my knowledge, been a motion requesting that yet. Okay. Dan, thank you. Thank you for coming on to, you know, the world leader in business news. Seems like an obvious place to come to discuss this, but uh, appreciate that. BK, can I talk to you uh, about this? If what would it be yeah. worth if Elon got out of uh, did, was able to get out of this? Where's Twitter? What do you think? Or maybe you got other comments. Go wherever you want. I know you have a comment. Well, you know, listen, I, I, I actually think it would be pretty bullish for Twitter if Elon got out of it in the sense that it just clears up the uncertainty. We, you know, every day you've got this sort of Damocles hanging over. Is he going to back out? Is he not going to be able to support the bid? Who are these other bidders? Are they actually going to be able to come up with the cash? So I think if you could clear that out, then Twitter can kind of stand on its own on its own merits. Now, this entire whistleblower thing is a very different story because if those merits that we all think they are real aren't as real as we thought, then Twitter's got a problem. But for Elon, I think I think getting him out of the picture is better, not worse. Huh. That's interesting. Karen, it's down, you know, seven percent. Is that is that enough for you? To, would, would you put in a buy order on Twitter at thirty nine? Like an arbitrage buy order. Uh. Well, it's interesting. I, I I don't have a position. I was short uh, straddle, which expired on Friday. So actually, it would have been good for me if that happened uh, Friday, but that's okay. I think that this certainly introduces uncertainty, which is great for Elon, which is why they wanted a really long uh, time before the trial, just because you never know. Things happen sometimes, and maybe he gets lucky. This might be one of those times. I'm not sure that this rises to a material adverse change. We don't know that yet, and I don't know if the court will delay to sort of discover that issue. But if it does, and he's able to walk, and they have this issue, the stock, I think, goes to the 20s. So yeah, that, I'm not a buyer a, right here. Yeah, that's what I mean. If you, it, you'd have to, it'd almost be like an arbitrage buy that, that he has to buy it. That's the only reason you do it at 39 I, that, that I can think of. Anyway, thank you. Um, thank you all, one and all. Did you have any comments on that? Uh, no, I wouldn't be a buyer of Twitter there. There you go. Uh, that's good. There you go. Okay, coming up, uh, IPO, no. 
a drastic slowdown in the once red-hot IPO market. How big a problem is this for the big banks? First, though, NVIDIA out with earnings tomorrow. What can uh, investors expect? We're going to hit the option pits uh, for the move with T-Bone. Stick around. We'll be right back. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Intel uh, making headlines today after the company secured $30 billion in funding for its new chip factories. The Intel CFO uh, saying that the deal with Canada's Brookfield asset management could be the first of many. And sticking up with chips, NVIDIA. Those results due after the bell tomorrow. The semi-stock uh, down more than 40% this year after a heck of a run. Option traders are plugging in ahead of that report. Mike Coe is here with the action. What's going on, Mike? Hey, Joe. NVIDIA, always one of the busier single stock options. Today it ranks sixth, trading a little over 350,000 contracts overall. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 6.4% by the end of the week following earnings. Calls slightly outpacing puts, and the busiest calls were the weekly 180 strike calls that expire this coming Friday. Over 19,000 of those traded for an average price of a little over two and a half bucks a contract. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock will rally through that 180 strike price by the end of the week by at least the two and a half bucks that they paid, hopefully betting, I assume, for a little bit of a bounce after that pre-announcement we got a couple weeks ago. Yeah, always, uh, always exciting when NVIDIA posts, uh, let's trade it. Guy, what, what, are you, uh, what would you be doing? Look, I mean, it's Coco beware, I call him. I'm not sure what this T-bone thing is. I'm sure it's brilliant by you, but I'll say this. I will never get a bet against Mike Coe in terms of what he's seeing. I will say this, though, as well. If they guide on data center on the back of this guide from gaming, it's, it's sort of game over in the short term for this stock. So it ain't cheap. It hasn't been cheap despite the move it made to the downside. So if you get that bounce to that 185, 190 level, I think you take the money and run, Joe. Right. Where was, wasn't Guy around, Mike? We, Jason Alexander is Coco. He wanted to be T-Bone. But they called him Coco because he was always so T-Bone's open. I mean, if the people you want to be T-Bone, you're T-Bone, Mike. I'm, I'm giving it to yeah, you. Yeah, I'm going to have to stick with Coco because the Coco <laughs> that Guy is referring to is not the same Coco from Seinfeld. We're talking about a wrestler here, I think. Oh, okay. But T-Bone is so cool. I mean, Coco is you know it's that chimp. It's moving, I'm going to have a know. T. I'm going to have a T-Bone for lunch because I'm oh. a T-Bone kind of guy. <laughs> All right, Mike. Uh, Guy, you got to check on some of those. uh, And they're still on. I think you can see them on Peacock, uh, in fact, all those Seinfeld episodes. Thanks, Mike. For more uh, options action, be sure to tune in uh, to the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. uh, Eastern. Coming up, uh, a drastic slowdown in IPOs, a formerly red-hot market facing its worst year in two decades. And the impact could be felt more broadly in the startup world. We're going to discuss that when Fast Money returns in just two minutes. Welcome back to Fast Money. The IPO market is going through a big uh, drought in 2022. Companies have only raised about $4.5 billion uh, so far this year. That's down uh, more than 95% from the same time last year and puts us on pace for uh, the slowest IPO market uh, in two decades, and unfortunately, it affects 
affects us directly here at, at the NASDAQ because we get bacon when there's an IPO at the NASDAQ. And uh, Adina was on, and there have been no, uh, no IPOs and very, very few breakfasts uh, in the morning uh, for the staff. Uh, but, but you have a, a serious comment on this, BK. I mean, it is thin, uh, slim pickings right now, is it not, with, for IPOs? I mean, I, first of all, I had no idea you got bacon on IPO bacon. day. I would have been down bacon. there five days a week if I had known that. We get that. bacon on Jeez. IPO days. Thanks on for that. On IPO days. Yeah. We, yeah. I don't know if well, I'm allowed to disclose that. Yeah. I'll, I'll check my calendar for the next one. But I, I, so I'll tell you what, you mentioned earlier, I mean, this also impacts the, the venture capital world, too, because obviously, you know, this is the venture capital's uh, exit plan. So if you don't have an exit plan, it really goes down the food chain. And when I talk about when you talk about money center banks, yeah, OK, fine, they're getting a little bit of boost from yields right now. But part of their valuation appeal was that they had this whole investment banking business around them. And if that is starting to falter and you start to look at a weaker economy, now I've got the you know, I've got potentially some, you know, higher default rates or, or concern of that. Investment banking is weak. The only thing you really got is higher interest rates. But the yield curve is flat. So I think it goes further into the investment banks, money center banks than anything else. Is it lagging or leading, do you think? For, what, do you, what, what would you want to see to, to say that the, the market itself is improving? It, it, usually an, a hot IPO market is always good for, for like when we're partying, when, when equity is going up. Do you think it's bottoming now, BK? Um, well, it's, I, I don't think so, because I actually think the market's got a little bit lower to go. So I would say it's a leading indicator of New York real estate. Going to have a lot, a lot fewer bankers out there buying the big apartments. <laughs> yeah, you cannot have a booming IPO market until the Fed stops hiking rates. I mean, that, that's, that's to your point, right? You can't have a, the, the IPO market is, is, is correlated to risk markets doing well and being frothy. Right. Right, we, we don't have any clarity in that, and there's no timeline on when that will be back. Right. So and, that's a negative for a Morgan, a JP Morgan, and a Goldman. And for those that, that think that the answer to, uh, to inflation is increasing supply, you want investments, you want innovation, you want risk-taking. You want, so the Fed is, is, is really hurting what might be the solution to some of the issues that we have. So it's, it's, it's bass backwards. Is there ass backwards? What, what's, what can you say on cable? Either? I think you just did. You, did, you covered all your bases. Okay, everybody okay with that? But Guy, you're all right. I, I, I look to you for, for a lot of this stuff. No, I'm fine. I think it was scintillating conversation right there. You know, ended you? with that little <laughs> vernacular that you threw in. A, kind of a Descartes. I think he coined that term ass backwards, Rene Descartes, if I'm not mistaken. Coming up, uh, remembering a titan uh, on Wall Street and the generation of hedge fund managers that he helped create. Fast Money is back uh, in two minutes. Well, tonight we mark the passing of a legendary figure uh, on Wall Street that I mean, we all knew this guy he used to come on Squawk Box uh, all the time. Hedge fund titan Julian Robertson, he died today at the age of 90. Uh, for two decades, Julian led one of the largest and most high-profile funds, Tiger Management. He posted annual uh, average uh, returns staggering of over 30 percent. Mr. Robertson also became uh, known as a mentor to a generation of investors who affectionately uh, became known as Tiger Cubs. You know a lot of these guys if we were to mention them. Uh, he started Tiger with just under $9 million in 1980, and by uh, the late 90s, grew his fund to more than $22 billion. 
Uh, and in 2000, he closed his six uh, Tiger funds. Uh, wrong way bet on the yen took his assets down sharply. Uh, after he closed his funds, uh, he went on to seed many young managers uh, in exchange for a piece of their profits. And uh, he was a kind of a, I think he was a, a truly could be a tough assassin, but so gentle and, and uh, that southern accent, Karen, he was such a sweet man, wasn't he? You called him mm -hmm. uh, the godfather of the modern uh, hedge fund. Very thoughtful man. Right. And very philanthropic. I mean, so, very. you know, in 1980, he started a hedge fund. That's a pretty brilliant idea. And obviously his returns, as you said, north of 30 percent were extraordinary. So he's a great investor as well. But the idea of him being so good at spotting talent is also pretty amazing. So, you know, the list, as you said, I mean, it's, you know, uh, John Griffin and um, Steve Mandel and... Um, uh, uh, Chase Coleman. I mean, there's so many of them. And so he was great at that as well. And um, it's just a, an extraordinary legacy. So hats off to him. Yep. Guy? Sorry for the noise in the background. I got to meet him in the 90s. Real gentleman, University of North Carolina, served in the Navy. I mean, larger than life figure. You meet somebody like that, you don't forget it. And his legacy will live on forever. I mean, they're probably out of the top 100 hedge funds out there. My sense is four dozen of them have some ties to Julian Robertson and Tiger. So it's a sad day, but he lived a wonderful life. He did. Um, and 90 is a, is a life well lived, but, but you know, it, it doesn't matter that you're 90. Well, we, we do more in his passing and, and send the best to, uh, to his family. Up next, uh, your final trades. Already, time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Karen. Yeah, thanks for being here, Joe. Um, Target came back $23 in the last 10 days, so I reloaded some Target here. All right, Guy. I love you, Joe. You know that. I miss you. I love watching in the morning. Devin Energy, DVN, stay in the space. Guy, it was Taco Tuesday. I'm a little bit disappointed. It's okay, though. I'll be back. Uh, BK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that energy play. I'd do it via Exxon Mobil XOM. Grasso, you've got it. Was, it was really emotional. Uh, uh, guy, guy shared with you. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, we, I don't know. He said he loved you. And, he did. Uh, and you told him it was Taco Tuesday. Well, because we talked about that yesterday. I really was looking for, you were going to bring something, weren't you? I was. I was right going to bring something. Yeah, but neither of us were going to eat it. $8. No, we probably wouldn't. You're right. So you got to trade? What? Yes. Uh, X I'm, young, going against, brands. I'm, I'm going against the herd. XLE, sell energy, sold. Because last night they cut me off like a second early, I'm going to get out early. Thanks for watching Fast Money. I got like three seconds. Jim Cramer's next with Mad Money right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.